Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Our topic this morning is a serious topic, the new face of heroin addiction. Do you have a reason to believe a family member or a friend is possibly addicted? Could this addiction be heroin? What are the signs and what are the devastating results? My guest, Dr. David G. Greenberg, works extensively in the fields of chronic pain and addiction medicine as well as occupational and international medicine. He's going to discuss how heroin addictions are contributing to criminal activity and civil torts, unfortunately often by our youth. After graduating from medical school in 1979, Dr. Greenberg obtained his master's in public health from the University of Arizona, and since 1984, he has served with the Arizona Medical Board as an investigator, a medical consultant, as agency assistant director, and he serves as medical director for the Monitored Aftercare Program. He is a consultant for the U.S. Attorney's Office, the DEA, FBI, and other regulatory agencies in drug diversion, addiction medicine, over-prescribing, and he consults in the private sector. He's certified in addiction medicine by both the American Society of Addiction Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine. He served as director-at-large for the Arizona Pain Society and is a member of American Academy of Pain Medicine and National Association of Drug Diversion Investigators. And he maintains a private practice caring for patients with addiction issues. I'm honored to welcome Dr. David Greenberg, Good morning, Dr. Greenberg. Hi, Francie. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. I know you've been traveling quite a bit, and you just got back on on your home base last night, so I really do appreciate you being with me this morning. My pleasure. So, um, first of all, what um, I'm just curious, what is occupational and international medicine? Oh, um, occupational medicine is, is the study of diseases that are related to the types of work that people do. And uh, I spent a number of years working in the mining industry doing occupational medicine for them. As you know, mining is a, is a challenging and oftentimes dangerous uh, occupation. Mm-hmm. And uh, also worked within the smelting and, and other related types of, uh, types of processing that, that mining companies do. As far as the international piece, I've had uh, family that have lived in Central Africa for for, for many years in the past, and I uh, took work with mining companies in in uh, countries like um, uh, the working in Madagascar and in South Africa, Zambia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, Zimbabwe, Zambia, mostly southern and central Africa plus Madagascar. And is that due to the mining that goes on in those countries as well? Yes, it was working uh, with exploratory crews in those countries uh, that were searching for minerals and keeping the exploratory crews healthy. Uh, and then uh, if a mine, if the decision was made to, to, to put a mine in, then working on health and safety issues related to... Sounds the like they're ahead of the United States. Pardon? Is that true? Are they further along than we are as far as protecting our employees? 
Um, actually, some of the, the countries, South Africa has a, has a very advanced Hello? mining industry as far as occupational protection, and they are uh, at least our equals, if not, if not ahead of us in certain areas. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. 
That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm here with Dr. David Greenberg, and we're talking about the the new face of heroin addiction. And Dr. Greenberg, um, how did you come about to specialize in chronic pain and addiction medicine? Well, actually, I did uh, residency training at the University of Arizona in, uh, in uh, Tucson uh, in anesthesiology. And as part of, that, uh, part of the training there, we did uh, work and get trained in chronic pain medicine. So I was very lucky. I worked under uh, a professor, uh, Dr. Burnell Brown, who has since passed away. But he was, he was an expert, and there were many other experts there, in the long-term management of chronic pain disorders. So that's where I received my initial training in that area. Mm-hmm. And then you've carried it much further than that, though. Yes, I've carried it further because one of the most common complications in this current epidemic that we're having of, uh, of opioid addiction is, 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 uh, is, is just that, the abuse and, and uh, premature death and brain damage caused by opioid drugs and, and uh, other controlled substances. And uh, addiction is a very vexing problem. Uh, it is it is difficult to treat, but it's entirely possible to successfully treat it. There's there's no question about that. But uh, it's a challenge for our society, and addiction and pain pretty much go hand in hand. You can practice addiction medicine, uh, but if you don't have some some good training uh, in pain medicine, you'll be missing things, and vice versa. You can practice pain medicine, but if you don't have some good training and expertise in addiction medicine, you'll be missing critical things, and so. The, the two go together quite well. And so uh, heroin is an opiate. Heroin is an opioid drug. And o- the term opioid is, is, is a more recently used term. The old term would have been narcotic drug. And narcotic drugs referred to uh, initially pure opium and then what would be called semi-synthetic forms of opium. And that's where they take the, the juice from opium poppies and treat it with different chemicals. And uh, I believe Bayer, uh, the, one, the company that makes aspirin, was the first to, to successfully market a product in which they added basically acetic acid to morphine and uh, created diacetylmorphine, which was heroin. And uh, that was back uh, in the, in the uh, 19th century, uh, well over 100 years ago now. And, and uh, it, was, it was used for pain and to suppress coughs. And there was actually a, a formulation for babies in which it was used for colicky babies and, uh, and uh, to treat cough and diarrhea in children. Wow, that's scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, didn't Bayer Aspirin have a whole big problem with uh, selling heroin as a uh, product? Uh, well, no, not in not in the the late 1800s and early 1900s. There were there were there was very little in the way of regulation uh, of, of the controlled substances the way that we have now. Uh huh. So they didn't have a problem doing it, and uh, and many other patent medicines of the time com- uh, contained uh, you know over the counter preparations that had uh, morphine or opium or heroin or cocaine in them as one of the active ingredients. Mm. And, and where does heroin come from? Heroin comes from the opium poppy, and uh, what happens with it is, is that the poppy has, has flower, uh, flowers that come out, and the, the, the base of the flower or the bulb uh, is cut with a little razor or sharp knife, and the latex comes out, which is the juice. It's kind of a rubbery, sticky juice, and that's the raw opium, and then that's processed chemically uh, into 
um, into heroin. And in different parts of the country, they use, in different parts of the world, they use different types of processing techniques. Is there any medical purpose to use heroin? Uh, some countries do use heroin for medical purposes. Uh, it has uh, no significant advantages over other powerful opioid drugs, uh, but it also doesn't have uh, any significant disadvantages compared to a lot of the other basic opioid drugs. It's just historically in, in, in the United States we've, we've outlawed it because it, uh, it became a problem with addiction and a problem with criminality, so that it became outlawed. But there are other civilized countries that, that use it. For example, in, in some countries it's called diamorph, uh, which means it's the short name for diacetylmorphine, and that's heroin, and it is used as a painkiller and for other purposes, just like any other opioid drug. And, of course, the problem with it being sold on the black market, as it's done in the United States, is that it gets cut with other things, and you have no idea what's there, Correct. Right. We have two basic problems with heroin in the United States. Uh, the, the white or brown powdered heroin that comes from um, our allies in Afghanistan or the Far East, that type of heroin is cut substantially um, as it's diluted down from one uh, wholesaler to, to, uh, down to the retail level. And consumers really don't know what it's cut with. It could be cut with Comet Cleanser. It could be cut with uh, sugar. It could be cut with anything, and, and it's hard to know as, as a consumer. The other type of heroin, which is, which is uh, taking over the country west of the Mississippi, is called black tar heroin. And that's a type of heroin uh, which is made through a simpler process. It's less refined, and it has uh, a lot of toxic uh, materials that are in it to include toxic chemicals, uh, and also uh, it's, it's also contaminated with, uh, with bacteria and the spores of bacteria. Uh, but it is a cheaper form of heroin, and uh, it is a better, you, you get more bang for your buck with, with, uh, with black tar heroin. The, the, the strengths of it have increased dramatically over the past decade. So is the black tar more in the natural form? Is that why... What it is is that in black tar heroin, they don't they skip the they skip the step of turning the heroin into morphine, and then turning the morphine into heroin. So what they do is is it's, it has uh, some of the, it has some of the additional natural residues and other chemicals that are in the opioid uh, that are in the opium juice, mm-hmm. and uh, so it has that. But it also has chemicals uh, that are used to process it in it. And as I said before, it has bacterial con- uh, contamination also. And as you and I were talking yesterday, you have a major concern about what's happening with the youngsters. Yeah, we do. And I, I think what I'd like to do is say this, because we're going to get into to talking about uh, drug diversion and young people, and I would like to make one, one uh, caveat here before we get into okay. that, and that's simply this, is that I am not an advocate for going back to the bad old days when human beings who were suffering from uh, uh, painful conditions that had no viable treatments within modern medicine were, were sometimes not prescribed opioid medicines to help them with their pain and that they suffered unduly. And that, that also, uh, I also do not uh, believe in the restriction of opioid drugs for people with terminal conditions. And mm-hmm. in the past, tragically, uh, some doctors uh, with, with, who were misguided felt that even in terminal patients that they needed to restrict opioid drugs. So I am not anti-opioid drugs. I am a proponent for the safe and effective prescribing of opioid drugs, and I'm also a proponent for properly working at patients, properly monitoring patients, and uh, 
also properly warning patients of the significant side effects that, that these powerful medications can cause. So I just want to get that out there up front. Sure. I, I do prescribe opioids. They have a definite place in, in the treatment of chronic pain, and when properly used in the right patients, they can help people have great lives. Okay. Okay, now, the problem that we have in the United States is this, and we're the only country in the world that has this problem. Uh, and, and in a nutshell, it's this. We have allowed the development of extremely high-dose opioid drugs in the United States by our, our major pharmaceutical companies, and we have allowed them to be prescribed in a way by doctors, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, etc., that that allows diversion of those drugs to easily occur. And what drug diversion means is is this. Drug diversion means that a person is obtaining drugs from a legitimate prescriber, a legal prescriber of the of the of the uh, of the substance. Okay. And then they are taking those drugs and they are commercially selling them to other people. And where you see this most, uh, uh, most distinctly uh, is in young people. And what's happening in the United States, and this, it's happening in, in a way that's just not happening elsewhere within the world, is that our young people are becoming addicted to very powerful opioid pain pills. And these are pain pills that are far stronger than any kind of opioid pain pill you could have ever found 15 years ago. Okay. Uh, and, and so not only are they becoming addicted to them, but they're becoming addicted to very high doses of powerful opioids. That is, that's very problematic. And you're talking about pills like Percocet? Well, I don't want to use any name brands. Okay. But what I'll say is this. The most common pills um, are, are that, that, that kids start out on are, contain the drugs hydrocodone or oxycodone. Okay. And, uh, and actually, uh, I can, uh, let me just give you just a very few statistics from uh, the first 300 suboxone, uh, pardon me, buprenorphine detox patients that I had in an indigent that would be like a, a Medicaid-type program in Phoenix, Arizona. And, again, this is not a scientific study. This is just the first 300 patients that I had that came in for detox. Their okay. average age was 24 years of age. Eighty percent were white. 17% were Hispanic, 2% were black, and 1% were other. Most of the other were Native Americans. And the reason Native Americans were, I believe, poorly represented is that uh, our facility is very near an Indian health service facility that does uh, excellent addiction care. And so I think that people were going to the Indian health uh, facility. At any rate, um, the ratio of male to females uh, was almost equal. Okay, so really? now we have two really striking things that I've just told you. Number one, um, 80% of people presenting for, for heroin addiction being Caucasian is, is a big demographic shift. Uh, the, if, you, if you'd done this same type of a study uh, 10 years ago, uh, the, the, the racial uh, uh, mix would be quite different, and, and the number of Caucasian people, young people that were presenting for heroin treatment would have been much closer to about 10%. So there's been dramatic growth there. The other thing is, is the male to female ratio is almost equal. Again, historically, uh, men have, have, have always been uh, better represented than, than women in, uh, in, in heroin treatment uh, uh, and in the United States of America. 
the average age of their first use of opioids so for these 300 people was just under age 17. Now, that's important because the younger a person is when they start using a drug that, that is potentially addicting, um, the more chance they'll get addicted to it and the more chances are that they, that they will not be able to, to recover from that addiction. Now, here's the most important uh, important. Uh, piece of information. Out of these 300, the source of the first abused opioids, in other words, the first opioid pills that they got and took into their bodies as teenagers, the, the, uh, the source of this was 81% from, of, of them got their first opioid pills in which they purchased them from commercial drug diverters who were selling either within the neighborhood or at school. Mm-hmm. That is uh, that is an astounding figure. Now, let me tell you why children need to have commercial drug diverters. Okay, the reason they need to do that is is because children cannot go see doctors and be treated without parental consent. Right. So, uh, a very few parents would 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 accompany their child to a doctor and encourage that doctor and okay that doctor to prescribe uh, high dose opioid pills to their fifteen year old. Right. Uh, for, for some kind of undiagnosed back pain or something. So this is, this is, this is the main source of the, of the gateway opioids for the young people, and this is, uh, this is a huge problem, and we only see this kind of, uh, of volume in this direction in, in the United States. Now, the pharmaceutical industry would like people to believe that these kids are getting their opioids from the family medicine chest or from grandma's medicine mm-hmm. chest. Mm-hmm. And that's simply not true. Uh, that's both in my experience doing the study, which in which less than one percent said that they became addicted to, to first addicted to, to the pills that were in the family medicine chest, but also from uh, from my colleagues in ER medicine, addiction medicine, and within the DEA, the the the, the drug diversion by commercial drug diverters who see pain doctors and get prescribed these drugs and then sell them. That is the 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 overwhelming. Uh, uh, a point at which these gateway drugs are siphoned out of the legitimate system and diverted to children. Okay, let's go, let's go back to these drug diverters a minute. So, sure. my understanding is correctly that somebody that can pres- um, it has to be a medical doctor that can prescribe um, these pills are actually prescribing them to somebody that is in the volume that they can take and use and sell it. Correct. That's absolutely true. Um, and the, the, the background of why that's happening in the United States is, is this. Uh, in, in our country, and, and there's nothing wrong with this at all, uh, pharmaceutical corporations are allowed to pursue whatever will maximize their profits as a, as a company that makes medicines, drugs, and, and uh, sometimes other related medical uh, devices. Uh, so what's happened in the United States over the last 15 years is that the large pharmaceutical companies have Pretty much uh, gotten out of lesser uh, lesser endeavors and, and, and products that got them less profit. So, for example, none of the large American drug companies do any research now on antibiotic drugs anymore. Virtually none of them do any research on antibiotic drugs. They've mm. simply dropped it like a hot potato. And the reason is, is you can make plenty of money on antibiotic drugs, but antibiotic drugs are only taken usually for ten days, two weeks, and either the patient gets better or they die. And so the, the, the potential for profit is much lower because the fact that it's not a drug that people will be taking chronically. So there's been sure. a real focus now within the pharmaceutical industry to focus on chronic illnesses, 
uh, to focus on illnesses that Americans have in which they don't want to change their lifestyles, but these, these, the medicines will help them cope with the, the side effects of lifestyles that are not as healthy as they could be. Uh, the, other, the other big growth area has been for medicines to help people uh, with their mood uh, and, and to help them with other chronic problems like depression. And again, in the United States, very few people get talk therapy anymore, even though talk therapy for, for depression works very well, and, and, and studies around the world and in the U.S. have shown that. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's a pressure to just go ahead and use medications on these people, and those are highly profitable. Uh, another example would be, of course, the opioid drugs, because people uh, who, who use these opioid drugs and get good results will continue to use them uh, for long periods of time, possibly for, for the rest of their lives. So, so the, the, the problem that we get into specifically is, is that the vast majority of American physicians, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants never learned anything uh, of, of any substance in their medical, medical school training or their residency and internship type training or fellowship training, um, never learned how to properly diagnose chronic pain issues and mm-hmm. how to properly work up a, mon- a chronic pain patient, how to monitor them safely, how to do proper informed consent, which means you really explain to these people what, what the serious common problems that they can get into with these drugs are. Mm-hmm. And also they're not trained in how to look for problems with addiction or, and then how to diagnose addiction or refer people for treatment for addiction. The companies, what they did was is they got the FDA to approve these drugs at very, very high doses. And let me give you an example. An oxycodone pill would have normally been a five milligrams of oxycodone in it with a little bit of, of uh, acetaminophen or Tylenol. Okay. That, was, that was what uh, the, the standard oxycodone or, as you, as you said before, Percocet pill would have had in it. Okay? Mm-hmm. And that was used for all sorts of serious chronic pain. The companies got the FDA to allow an increase in the unit dose of oxycodone per pill from five milligrams per pill up to 160 milligrams per pill. Okay. So they, they allowed the pills to be made 32 times stronger. Now, that's a, that's a huge, huge jump. Uh, and and uh, to, be, to be prescribing such uh, gigantic amounts of opioids to people a person really needs to have an understanding of, uh, first of all, what are, the, what are the reasons why you would prescribe that for a person, and what would you do to protect that patient and properly monitor them and, and make sure that things were going well. And, <laughs> and so that's where things have fallen down. Uh, most doctors get the, got their education on how to use these drugs, not from independent sources, but from the drug companies themselves, from their sales representatives. Who have a vested interest, obviously. Absolutely have a, have a, a vested interest. That's right. Well, and, but still, uh, in, in order to prescribe the volume of pills to a drug diverter, the doctors, I mean, there's more to it than just not uh, evaluating the patient properly. That's, that is true. Um, the other problem is, is that, unfortunately, a lot of prescribers, and again, it's not just physicians, it's also nurse practitioners and PAs uh, that prescribe these drugs for chronic pain. It's true. That it's, not just, it's not just that they're not properly evaluating these patients or getting their old records or even asking the patient the question, 
why are you leaving Dr. X to come see me? Mm-hmm. Uh, like that. There's, there's all kinds of those problems, but they're also not using the basic tools that we, that we can scientifically use to see if a person is a doctor shopper or, or, or having a problem with addiction or something like that. And, and those two tools are almost all the states in the union have something called a controlled substance prescription monitoring program. And any doctor or PA or nurse practitioner can register uh, with, the, with these programs. They're in most of the states. Uh, pretty soon I'm sure they'll be in all of the states. And what they'll do then is they, they query that patient. And when they query that patient, for example, in, in Arizona, they get an 18-month printout of all the different controlled substances that that person has been prescribed in the past 18 months, plus the names of the doctors and numbers for the doctors, prescribing numbers for those doctors, uh, that, that, that prints out. So it gives you a tremendous amount of information. And if people will query that system uh, before they prescribe, uh, it'll it'll add a, a dramatic uh, amount of safety to the whole process. But often, what's happening is they're not querying the system. They don't query the system. There's no law uh, that they have to query that system before they prescribe. And if you're if you're a busy practitioner and you query the system and you find out that someone has been has been doctor shopping, then you have to deal with confronting the person. Right. And, and then that slows down your day, and you lose a patient, and it's, it's, uh, there, there's no incentive uh, to, to really do that. So that's, that's one thing that's not being done in, in a large number of cases. I know that in, in, in some states, less than 10% of the doctors that prescribe opioid drugs regularly query that system. Uh, so that's, uh, that's a problem. The next thing is, is that they're not taking advantage of drug testing technology. Now, the reason you do drug testing on people is to see if they're taking the drug that you're prescribing for them and also to make sure they're not taking any illicit substances which, which are not being prescribed for them. And again, unfortunately, many of the doctors that are doing chronic pain uh, work and, and also nurses and, and physician assistants uh, simply are not doing the proper type of urine or hair testing to confirm that the patient is taking the, the pills that they're supposed to be taking and also rule out that they're not abusing other drugs that are not being prescribed. Okay, so back to our young people. What's happening with them is that they start out on pills. Correct. That they're getting from their buddy at high school, for example, and then, and then the pills aren't enough. Any longer. Right. What happens, the, uh, for example, if you look at oxycodone, the retail value of oxycodone is about a dollar a milligram in the United States. Okay? Okay. So if a, if a person starts taking a, a preparation of oxycodone that's just five milligrams per pill, then they're really paying a retail you know, rate of, of five milligrams per pill. If they are a human being who is genetically susceptible to opioid addiction and they become addicted to the drug, then the amount of drug that they need goes up rapidly and, and continues to go upwards. So they may have to change from taking 5 or 10 or 15 milligrams of oxycodone per day to having to take uh, 240 milligrams of oxycodone per day. And mm-hmm. so you can, you can see that that, that, uh, that can be expensive, especially for a kid. Uh, and because and, uh, if, if they were taking 240 milligrams of oxycodone per day, that would be about $240 a day. Now, the other problem is, is, that, is that the kids smoke these pills, and they can also inject the pills, 
uh, and uh, and they can also crush the pills up and snort them, or they can just chew them up. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are uh, there is one new preparation out now that is harder to uh, oxycodone uh, preparation that is harder to abuse, but that's a very recent drug. It's just come online uh, as as a drug, and uh, it's expensive uh, because it's got patents on it, and uh, it's not it's not at this point. Uh, um, having making much of a dent on the abuse of these drugs, so the kid. What happens is this, Francie. The kids get strung out. They become addicted to the the opioid drug. In this case, let's say oxycodone, and they they're having trouble paying paying their supplier, their dealer. Mm-hmm. The dealers uh, are are full service dealers, and so they carry the pills, but they also carry in our part of the world, west of the Mississippi, black tar heroin. And they have a they have a heart to heart talk with the kid and say, look, you, you can't you can't be behind me on your payments like this. Uh, mm-hmm. This is not good, and you're going to have some real pain if you don't start paying me what you owe me. But what you can do is think about this: you can make a, a decision in your own best interest, and that is to switch from pills to black tar heroin, because black tar heroin you'll get more of a high, you know, get more drug effect per dollar spent. And uh, and the other thing that the dealers will tell the kids is that hey you don't have to inject it you can smoke it mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, and uh, what happens is is that a huge number of these kids do convert to tar heroin and a statistic again that I'll give you because it's an interesting thing from the time that these kids start the opioid pills in their teens to the time that they switch to tar heroin and which they're converting to using tar heroin is seven months. That's the average Amazing. time. Okay? And the reason the kids give is one of two reasons or both. Number one reason is lower cost. Number two reason is easier availability. So it's easier to find and buy. And that's a pretty good combination if you're, if you're easier, marketing. It's easier to find black tar heroin than it right. is the pills. Yeah. Uh, another wow. interesting thing about these kids is that only 19% of them um, have either full or part-time uh, employment, and uh, and when we ask them, uh, what you know, are you, are you involved in illegal activities in order to fund your drug purchases? And most of these illegal activities are not armed robbery, but they are illegal activities, whether it's shoplifting or or uh, mm-hmm. burglary or or whatever. Uh, and 92 percent of uh, the 300 patients that we saw readily admitted to to regular illegal activity. To fund their drug purchases. So okay. let's uh, let's take a break, Doctor. Sure. We'll be right back shortly okay. in just a couple seconds. The internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. 
for a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. IRB Search is simply the best online data provider for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB Search gives you strength in numbers. With one click, you can access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified and you'll receive a two-week trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call one 800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm talking with Dr. David Greenberg, a medical specialist in addiction medicine, and we're talking specifically about heroin addiction and how that comes about. And um, so, Dr. Greenberg, could you tell us what symptoms? I know there's parents listening to the show, and I'm sure they would like to know what symptoms to look for if their child is involved in heroin. Sure, and and uh, I'd like to, to preface it with this, and that's simply this, is that early on, especially when the kids are just using the pills, um, it can be very difficult to tell. It's not like alcohol or marijuana uh, where there's an odor that you can pick up or yeah. something like that, and also the pills are very easy to hide and, and, and so that parents can't find them, et cetera. So, exactly, um, and are they marked somehow? The pills have markings on them, uh, but uh, uh, the only way to, to know what those markings mean would be either to take the pill and call Poison Control, the 1-800 mm-hmm. number, and just ask them what that pill is, or to look on the, 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 uh, the Internet uh, uh, or a book of the, the PDR, the Physician's Desk Reference. But uh, well, calling good, Poison Control advice. is a legitimate thing to do. If you find un- unknown pills on your kid's possession and you want to know what they are, calling Poison Control is a very quick, rapid, and legitimate thing to do, and uh, poison control people normally don't mind if you do that because they're there to help, and, and for a child, that's a poison. That's great. That's great. That's good advice. Thank you. Yeah. So with, <clears throat> with, by, the time, uh, by the time a child is, is making the transition to heroin, uh, there, are, there are basically two different types of, of, of problems that you look for. The acute toxicity, in other words, when the person is, is, is under the influence heavily, uh, they'll seem very sleepy. Uh, they'll be nodding off, and that means that they'll be per, they'll be engaged in an activity, whether it's a conversation or eating dinner or or uh, you know, God forbid, driving, in which they appear as though they're somewhat alert, 
but then their eyes start to blink and their head nods down. And that's good. The, the, the slang term for that is called nodding off, and that's something that you see with, with opioids uh, very commonly. Mm-hmm. You can also see that and when, they're, they're under, when they're under the influence that their, their pupils are small, and, uh, uh, and uh, when they're in a withdrawal period, that their, their pupils can get, can get larger. But the most important things, I think, that you can see are what we call um, uh, the chronic, the chronic uh, toxicities. And first and foremost are the cognitive impairment problems. And what happens is, is that these drugs do poison the brain, and uh, the child may start having problems in school, <clears throat> the parent may notice the child's having more problems than normal with short-term memory, <clears throat> that the, the child's uh, uh, problem-solving abilities uh, just in general uh, go down and that they, they seem to be more apathetic and, and more moody. Mm-hmm. The other thing that happens with heroin addiction invariably is that the, <clears throat> the person who's suffering from it starts having problems with honesty, and uh, they become progressively... Uh, more dishonest with parents and other people, and they also become dishonest with themselves. And they, they, they also tend to have a decreased self-awareness of the obvious problems that are being caused by the opioid drugs. So, of course, you're describing teenagers who aren't taking drugs. Exactly, often. and that's what makes it so difficult. So the, the next thing parents can look for are the kids that, that their friends are hanging around with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, they, can, they can look for how is the child... Uh, functioning uh, in in their life as far as school and as far as as far as other activities, uh, are they developing any more depression or anxiety uh, than the, that that would seem that would seem problematic? But to tell you the truth, the only way that you can really know uh, whether your child is on drugs or off drugs is to have a serious talk with them, and if you have concerns. Tell them that you love them and care about them and that you're worried about them and that one of the things you'd like to rule out is any kind of problem with drugs. And the way that can be done is either with a hair test um, mm-hmm. or a urine test. And a urine test will tell you what's in their system right then and what they've taken in the last few days. And a hair test can tell you what they've been taking uh, on any regular basis over the last 90 days. So it's, it's not an easy thing. Now, obviously, if a parent sees injection marks on their child's arms, that's, that's, that's a life-and-death sure. emergency sure. Uh, because uh, they may say it's mosquito bites, but, uh, but very few mosquitoes uh, bite along the same vein continuously and form cracks. So, so there are those types of things. And, of course, black tar heroin parents may find that, uh, and it, it kind of almost looks like a piece of charcoal or uh, of unburned charcoal, uh, or, or if chalk were black, it, it, it kind of looks like that. Mm-hmm. Is there a typical profile of a user or not? You know, there's, it's hard to make a typical profile of a user, but the big change has been is that, is that heroin is, is now becoming less of a disease of the underprivileged uh, poor in the United States and is really moving in, and, and, uh, and, and well, there have been tremendous recruitment, I hate to use that word, of middle-class and upper-middle-class kids. Uh, and again, it's almost always by using the pills first and then uh, making that transition uh, to the to, to the heroin for for cost reasons. So the the problem and the fix is uh, in in our country is is to how do we limit this over prescribing and and careless prescribing mm-hmm. of high doses of these medicines to 
commercial diverters. And, uh, and that, that's something that law enforcement has not been able to handle despite their best efforts. Medical boards uh, have not been able to have much of an effect on it at all. Uh, and and uh, it is a very difficult thing. I've been involved in, in, you know, multiple cases where doctors are brought into court for criminal proceedings regarding overprescribing, either because of deaths or, or other injuries. Mm-hmm. And, and that, is a, that is a long, slow process. And, uh, and the courts are, are you know, as, as you know, are pretty well, uh, the criminal court system is, 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 is overwhelmed. congested. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. overwhelmed like so that. So what's the, what's the solution, Dr. Greenberg? Well, I think the solution is for, uh, unfortunately, I think, I think we're hitting one of the situations in, in life in which all of the normal regulatory law enforcement protective measures in our society have failed. Uh, and, and we really don't have, uh, we don't have, there's not much protection for those kids out there. Mm-hmm. And because of that, uh, this is one of those situations in which, in which, uh, plaintiff attorneys, uh, play a role in our society because that's when they get involved is when, when, when people are being injured and the normal protective mechanisms are no longer functioning or non-existent or, or simply, um, not up to the, not up to the, the test. Uh, I believe that uh, through the tort system uh, that people will be able to more and more successfully sue physicians and other prescribers who are not adhering to safe practices because these safe practices have been promulgated by the federal government uh, and also by the drug companies that, 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 that produce these drugs and, and uh, by medical boards and uh, by the major addiction and chronic pain uh, societies that are, that are internationally and, and res- also respected in the United States. So it's not like we don't have criterion for what constitutes safe prescribing and safe practice. It's just that nobody's enforcing that. And I, I believe that, uh, yeah. that plaintiff attorneys may wind up being that force. Although it so- seems like it would be hard to trace because if you're buying it on the street... Um, that person's not going to give up their supplier. I mean, it seems like a real difficult path. You're, you're absolutely correct. I think that it'll be patients of these doctors who aren't diverting or who aren't diverting their whole supply who will, who will be suffering severe side effects from these drugs and or death or, or, brain or, or, uh, or, or other major medical complications and that they will go after these doctors or their, their, their survivors will go after these doctors in a court of law and stating that their reckless prescribing of these drugs contributed to the damages that are there. And I believe that what will happen as a, as a side effect of that will be that the dangerous prescribers will change their ways or get out of the business. If mm-hmm. they change their ways and prescribe more safely, that's good because they won't be prescribing as much to diverters or to people who are addicts themselves. But you're 100% right. To happen, I guess, would be somebody would have to overdose or die. Yes, well, overdosing or dying, or uh, they, would, they would have to overdose and have serious brain damage, or they would be in a, in a car wreck, uh, which is D, uh, drug DUI is going is to blossom. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, DRE, uh, you know, uh, investigators are being trained more on how to recognize drugs, and more and more jurisdictions are testing people on suspected DUI for drugs, too. So that's going to be a major growth industry, uh, and, and I think that'll be it. But, but you're 100% right. Uh, the, the kids that are getting the diverted drugs, that's, that's a hard trace uh, to do. Now, there have been, there've been uh, 
there have been movements to put certain types of markers in the pills so that they can follow them from one source to another. Mm. Uh, but, uh, but so far, uh, that, hasn't, uh, that hasn't occurred. I see. Well, that sounds like a good idea, actually. I think I think I think that 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 day may come, but but it hasn't happened yet. And the last thing I'll say is this: is that there is treatment, uh, treatment for adults and treatment for children. Uh, the the number one thing that has to happen, though, is that whatever enabling system is around that person mm-hmm. has to be willing to say enough is enough. No more money. No more credit cards. No more support. You need to get into treatment and do your best job in treatment and then have the proper follow-up, which is long-term follow-up and aftercare and urine testing to make sure that, uh, that, you're, that people are maintaining their recovery. Uh, and that type, of a, that type of a treatment program can work. It's used for doctors. It's used for nurses. It's used for airline pilots. Uh, but unfortunately, in, in, the, in the, treatment, uh, the treatment industry at large, there's a lot of uh, emphasis on the front end, which is the, the expensive treatment uh, in an inpatient treatment center or outpatient treatment, and not that long-term follow-up that these people need for years in order to make sure that they're staying clean. And if they're not staying clean and you catch them in a relapse, you catch that relapse right away, just like you catch a diabetic who's starting to relapse when they're diabetes. You catch it right away and you treat it before they have life-threatening or career-threatening or, or personal uh, family-type threatening complications to it, and, and that's the management style that works, but right now in our country, that, uh, that also is, has not really been fully implemented for, for the masses of the people suffering from these diseases. And with each relapse, is the recovery harder? You know, it's a very good question. Sometimes relapse can actually be, be transformed into an event which, in which the addict finally realizes that, mm. oh my God, this is it. You know, uh, this is life or death for me, and I have to work a recovery program much more diligently, and 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 uh, and that's 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 what I have to do. Yeah. Uh, but what happens uh, uh, too often is that people relapse, but their enabling system continues to enable them, and they continue will they'll continue to give the 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 person um, money or money equivalents like like shelter and food and all right. those right. things and and it's it's a very very difficult situation. The the last thing I'd like to say because I know we're getting to, to the end. Yeah, of the we day, are. Yeah, we are. Is that the number one cause now of accidental death in the United States? Is and this is the year 2011 2012 is when when the experts say it's going to happen is going to be accidental death due to ingestion of prescription opioid mm. pain pills. And, and that, mean, that, that means whether they took it by, um, uh, for treating chronic pain or they took it recreationally uh, or as an addict or an abuser, that that is becoming the number one cause of accidental death. And that means it's going to be more than motor vehicle accidents. Okay, we have to go. Okay. That's music to close us down. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Greenberg, for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to educate us on this important topic. I certainly learned a lot, and I hope those of you who are listening receive new information as well. So Good. tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. Thank you, Dr. Greenberg. Thank uh, you. PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. 
Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.